everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we entertain truly revolutionary ideas. This is certainly the case today in episode number 21, as I have on Ari Kruglansky, an expert in the ways in which people make sense of things and specifically become closed-minded and extremist. Now, today's episode is deeply humbling to me. I got very lucky earlier this week when I emailed one of my personal heroes and he responded almost immediately and was happy to chat within just a few days, which sent me scrambling to hurry up and try and figure out precisely how I would go about chatting with him and what kinds of questions I would ask. And I am deeply, yeah, deeply honored to have him on today. Ari Kruglansky is really influential. I'm not the only person who has been influenced by him. He's been very influential in the field of psychology and specifically in understanding the ways in which we make sense of things, whether we stay open-minded, when we become closed-minded, why that happens. He often talks about motivations. He says that we are thoughts. I ask him in the episode, which uh, by the way, I, I just recorded. I ask him in the episode, if you can ever separate thought from feeling or from motivation, which is a question I spend a lot of time thinking about. And he said, no. And I, of course, I absolutely agree with him. And so he, he talks a lot about these motivations, these underlying compulsions that we have for significance and for answers that can lead to terrorism, that can lead to becoming extreme, having extreme viewpoints. And that's not just in a terroristic sense, but in our, in our day-to-day lives and can lead to close-mindedness and the kinds of polarization we're seeing in our political landscape today. And so this is all deeply, deeply relevant. I think probably one of the most pressing, pressing issues of the modern era and why I personally have committed myself so intently to the study of uncertainty and the way in which it affects us. So today's podcast is deeply meaningful and humbling to me. And also Eric Kruglansky is not only brilliant, but incredibly warm and kind to me, as you will see in the interview. And so it's really great. I will read his bio really quickly so you understand a little bit of how um, I have been influenced by him and others as well. And then I will I'll jump right into it. Ari W. Kruglansky is a distinguished university professor, a recipient of numerous awards, and a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the American Psychological Society. He served as an editor on the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Attitudes and Social Cognition, editor of the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, and associate editor of the American Psychologist. These are all important journals. His work in the domains of human judgment and belief formation, the motivation cognition interface, group and intergroup processes and the psychology of human goals has been disseminated in over 300 articles, chapters, and books, and has been continuously supported by grants from a wide variety of institutes. He was one of the founding private or (laughs) one of the founding PIs, which is investigators uh, and co-directors of START, which is the national center for the study of terrorism and the response to terrorism. In doing so, he conducts research with the support of grants from the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, on the psychological processes behind radicalization, de-radicalization, and terrorism. And he has also, this is not in his, in the bio of his that I'm currently reading, he has worked, studied, and worked with the de-radicalization process in actual uh, people moving away, coming out of terrorist groups. So he is 
richly experienced and knowledgeable. And so it is a really, again, it's really wonderful to hear him speak. So I will go ahead and jump right into it. Here is Professor Ari Kruglansky. Perhaps we should just, you know, why don't you tell me a little bit, uh, if you don't mind, about sort of what you're doing and, and why you're doing it? Uh, I'm uh, studying at this point, I'm uh, very interested in psychology of extremism, uh, writ large. I uh, got to that uh, topic from studying violent extremism, mm -hmm. conflict regions in the uh, of the world, studied extremist terrorists, uh, activists uh, of various ilks, various mm -hmm. cultures in Sri Lanka, in the Philippines, Morocco, uh, in uh, Syria, uh, and uh, I'm now trying to expand it to understand extremism mm. in a larger sense, uh, that, because I believe that uh, the core psychology of extremism is common. Extremism such as extreme sports, extreme diets, situations. Extreme mm addictions of various types, um, drug addictions, work addictions, video addictions, gaming addictions, shopaholism. Uh, they seem to be strange bedfellows, but mm -hmm. I believe that they share a psychological core in common uh, that is this, at, 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 at its foundation, not dissimilar from violent extremism. So that's the topic. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly excited about these days. Uh, but I'm generally interested in all aspects of human psychology, uh, particularly with the motivational aspects, mm. because I believe that uh, it's motivation that drives all psychological phenomena. It's not cognition. Cognition is the handmaiden of motivation. So we have to understand what motivates people and how motivation works in general. Hmm. That brings that actually, this is a question that I've been wanting to ask you. I've been working a lot on the concept of objectivity yeah. and the sort of, I see it as an illusion that we think that our thoughts can be removed from our feelings. Is there any kind of thought that we can have that is ever not motivational? I do not think so. Hmm. Cognition is motivated. It can be motivated by the desire for the truth by the desire for confidence uh, and to a very large extent by the desire to believe in uh, good things, in, in, in things that we want to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to believe uh, that we are healthy, that we are successful. We want to believe that uh, uh, we matter, that uh, we des deserve respect, uh, that uh, we are significant. Uh, as opposed to being just a speck of dust in an uncaring universe, mm -hmm. as one philosopher put it. Uh, so these motivations carry our cognitions. And sometimes uh, even bad news are accepted because the motivation for truth prevails. Mm -hmm. And the, the evidence is so deeply compelling that even uh, our motivation to believe in things desirable isn't sufficient to overcome this uh, uh, motivation for truth. 
but in many cases, the motivation to believe in what we want to believe uh, takes the upper hand and, uh, and we are deluded in various ways. Right, and so what, would you say that there has been some aspect of these motivations and the types of things that lend to extremism, right? Like, is that something that is culturally conditioned, right? Is it something that's a part more, we see it more in our world today than we might have in previous eras? Yes, I think extremism uh, is rooted in two basic motivations. One is the motivation for certainty Mm -hmm. and an uncertain, unpredictable, threatening universe, uh, the motivation for certainty arises. And the second one is the motivation for significance, to feel that we matter. Mm -hmm. Once you combine these two motivations, uh, you find that people become very vulnerable to extremist ideologies that have these two fundamental components. They are very clear cut, they are Manichaean, they are black and white, us versus them, right versus wrong. So they provide certainty and they provide a way for you to be significant. All you have to do is to fight for ISIS. All you have to do is to support Trump. All you have to do <clears throat> is whatever the, the ideology uh, advocates mm -hmm. and that is going to make you a significant person. You're going to become a hero, a martyr, uh, a good person leading a good life, virtuous life. So these two conjunctions lead to extremism. Moderation is more balanced. Uh, it's not committed to one thing. Mm -hmm. The great appeal of uh, extremist ideology is that it's very simplistic. It identifies one thing that if you follow, uh, you, you'll have respect and you'll have certainty and your life is going to be orderly and meaningful. Right. Right. So, okay. So does everybody have a need for certainty or is it, how does it vary across populations? Why do we have it? As with, you ask two questions. Yes. Uh, Yes, what, I do. <laughs> what is it? And what, uh, uh, the second one uh, is... What, okay, uh, well... Whether people vary. Right. right. So, you know, all phenomena psychological uh, are diverse. They, they vary across people. And they vary across situations. And they vary across cultures. So, no two people are the same. No two people have the same desire for certainty. Some people are very intolerant of ambiguity. Some people are quite uh, tolerant of ambiguity. And in fact, they prefer ambiguity over certainty because ambiguity allows them to remain uncommitted. Mm -hmm. So there are individual differences, but with all phenomena psychological, the same state that uh, defines differences between people uh, also defines differences across situations. Mm -hmm. So there can be a situation in which most people would desire, would desire certainty to a greater extent than in other situations. When there's turmoil, uh, in times of war, in times of economic upheavals and, and, and predictability, 
most people desire certainty. <clears throat> this state of the world with economic uh, recessions, with uncertainty about Europe, with uh, the refugee crisis, with uh, migration of unprecedented proportions, uh, with uh, coming together through globalization and through media, with a variety of uh, a host of different ideas, there is great uncertainty uh, that m most people experience. Mm -hmm. So situation is another determinant of the, the quest for certainty. And of course, again, the third uh, factor that influences certainty is your culture. Some cultures insist on order and certainty. For example, the German culture is higher than the Greek culture on the desire for order. Uh, the Germans would see the Greeks as rather uh, uncoordinated, wishy-washy, uh, all over the place. Ordung muss sein in Germany. Uh, Japan would be similar. Some cultures are very insistent on certainty, and they uh, induce the quest for certainty in their members. People in a given culture learn from childhood that certainty is a very important thing, order is a very important thing. Others are freer, uh, the Southern cultures, you know, live and let live. Uh, so these three uh, components, the individual makeup, maybe genetically determined, maybe determined by the culture of, of, of your home, uh, the situation, whether the world seems to be unpredictable and threatening, and the culture in which you uh, were brought up. And now you ask another question. Uh, why do people need certainty to begin with? Mm -hmm. uh, certainty is a, an indispensable basis for action and decision-making. Uh, in order to cross a busy street, you have to be certain that no traffic is coming your way and uh, that, that can endanger you, that can hurt you. So any decision that you make, you need a certain degree of certainty. Uh, you, if you had uncertainty, you, you would be paralyzed. Uh, you'd be buried in thought. You'd be uh, paralyzed by uh, overanalysis. So certainty is an essential epistemic uh, concern that, that we need to have in every walk of life, anything that we do, any decision that we make. Uh, and uh, therefore, nature endowed us with the possibility of becoming certain. We become certain not because objectively there is firm basis for certainty, but because psychologically we determine that enough information is enough mm -hmm. and we can proceed with deciding and acting. Uh, so that's a, a very basic epistemic uh, component of our, of our psychology, of our activity, of, of the way... Uh, we conduct our lives. You need to have certainty to decide. Hmm. Now, the the language that you and now in the literature we use around this sort of thing is is cognitive closure, right? The the craving for cognitive closure and and to avoid it. And something I find interesting about your work is it seems as though most movements in psychology and many of the psychologists throughout the last several decades have focused on uncertainty as being a a problem and, and people definitely sort of characterizing humans generally 
as needing certainty and you uniquely say, well, actually people can need to avoid certainty, but also my curiosity is, uh, do people tend to lean towards certainty, you know, than more so needing certainty more so than to avoid it? Uh, and, and, and why, you know, why, why does that bias exist in the psychological literature? Uh, it's a very difficult to determine whether they desire, desire certainty more than uncertainty. Mm. It's easier to focus on certainty because, as I just mentioned, certainty provides the basis for action and decision-making. Mm-hmm. And insofar as decision-making and action make up our lives. Uh, our life is a, an, inter- an interminable chain of decisions and actions. So mm-hmm. it's easy to uh, focus on certainty. But uh, sometimes assert- uncertainty uh, is also uh, important, uh, especially if you want to be absolutely sure, uh, absolutely uh, truthful, absolutely uh, have a safe proof notion that, that you're correct. Uh, so if correctness is something that you worry about, you are going to delay certainty. At some point, you, you've, you've got to decide, although some people are pathological in that respect, I'll never decide. But in most cases, uh, you'd end up uh, deciding, and maybe that's the bias towards certainty. But I think it's, it's important to understand why people may desire uncertainty, and that's when they want to be you know, very, very faithful to whatever evidence there is, when they are, uh, want to be perfectionistic mm-hmm. and not uh, ignore anything that c- could be relevant, uh, when they do not want to commit to anything before it's absolutely necessary, uh, these people will be more t- tolerant of uncertainty. Uh, they will be more wishy-washy, less uh, sanguine about uh, their views. Mm-hmm. There are interesting differences uh, in that regard between conservatives and liberals. Conservatives are more committed to certainty. They're clearer. Their uh, commitment to whatever it is, uh, their group, uh, their political party, uh, their president is much more definite than liberals. Liberals admit, are tolerant of all kinds of things and then therefore become wishy-washy. If you recall John Kerry's uh, flexibility I was first for the war before I was against it. Uh, this kind of uh, openness, uh, which in, in, some, uh, in some sense is laudable and positive, it's at the same time wishy-washy and it's more characteristic of some people, uh, liberals versus conservatives, some cultures versus other cultures. So, you know, it's important to understand that continuum as opposed to saying people in general like X. Mm-hmm. People are different, situations are different, cultures are different, and it's important to understand these dimensions on which, uh, on, on which those differences exist. Mm. Uh, wh- why do you have any hypotheses about why the need for certainty and the obsession with having an ordered certain world it has increased or seems to be predominant in America? generally or the West generally today? 
Well, I think because uh, there have been changes. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, the migration crisis, uh, the economic debacle, the recession of 2008 uh, introduces a great deal of uncertainty into people's lives. Yeah. The technologic, technological development uh, of which some segments of the population participate more than others uh, creates these inequalities, these differences. People are frightened. They cannot participate uh, in, uh, uh, in globalization. They cannot uh, jet around the world. They feel left behind. Mm. Uh, so that introduces a great deal of uncertainty. The world, the liberal democratic order that existed for the last uh, 75 years from uh, the end of Second World War on uh, seems to be uh, crumbling. Uh, there is a great population movement. All of that introduces a great uncertainty, great strangeness. Foreigners are sweeping the land. They are threatening. They are different. Uh, and therefore, you have uh, the propensity to find clear-cut extremist ideologies mm. <coughs> that uh, demarcate us versus them, the, the threatening immigrants. And, you know, rational arguments to say that, you know, even though immigration increased, uh, uh, unemployment decreased, so it's, you know, it's not the case that immigrants threaten uh, employment uh, that has nothing to do with it. There is a psychological fear of strangeness, fear of foreignness, uh, the uncertainty that is being introduced. So the world right now is very much an uncertain place. And you see these extremist, populist, uh, simplistic movements springing up everywhere. Uh, you have fundamentalist Islam that breeds terrorism. <clears throat> all over uh, the, the, the Muslim world. Uh, ISIS is not defeated. ISIS uh, just morphed into a shadowy organization that has its tentacles uh, all over the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, in Eastern Europe, you have uh, the resurgence of nationalism. Uh, in the United States, you have a polarization. You have uh, our president, who is populist uh, on one side, and you have the leftist uh, populist on the other side. Uh, all of which uh, expresses this desire for clear-cut ideas. The banks are to be blamed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, the panacea is the Green New Deal. Whatever uh, the idea is, if it's simple, if it's promising, over-promising some good things, it's, it's going to be very attractive. Right, because if, if we have a higher need for certainty, then... It becomes it becomes less easy to hold open mindedness, right? And it becomes much more easy to be influenced by um, the kinds of information that comes immediately, or that is emotionally, right? That is fraught with emotion, and especially as you mentioned, uh, that might lend you significance, right? So we become more susceptible to being persuaded quickly, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. Because uh, persuasion and cognition, as we said, <clears throat> is driven by motivation. Uh, it's not that we are really responsive to arguments in any objective sense of the world. We are responsive to arguments that correspond to our motivations. And if you want certainty, an argument that pro promises certainty is going to be more palatable. An argument, if you, if you fear about 
uh, your standing in the world, uh, your significance, your mattering, an argument that tells you, will make America great again, will make Americans great again, you are an American, will make you great again. Well, that sounds very good for, for a person who is threatened concerning uh, their sense of mattering and significance. Right. And actually, slogans like Make America Great Again are very interesting to me because in some ways, I think they create the need for certainty in the first place. Right. They sort of Im imply that there's something that needs to be fixed or imply that there's something wrong. And so uh, often the types of propaganda that are really powerful are the ones that don't just provide you with significance and certainty, but also make you believe that it's more necessary. You're so right. You're right on target. Mm. Uh, the narratives uh, both activate the need and, uh, uh, and advocate a way of meeting that need. And, uh, you know, for example, in terrorist ideologies, uh, the communicators like Abu Yahya Libi, Osama bin Laden, Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, all of these great uh, communicators of terrorism, uh, first evoke the need. They say, you know, Muslims are being slaughtered, their, uh, their children are going, are going to be killed, their women are going to be raped. And you as a Muslim, even though you may reside in the UK, you may be a, a scion of a wealthy family, you may be even admitted to a medical school, your life seems to be going well, but as a Muslim you have been terribly humiliated and therefore you need to leave everything behind, go to Syria, and join ISIS. So the, the narrative both activates the need and advocates uh, a way of meeting that need. So absolutely. Hmm. And these types of things, they're sort of, you know, you were talking about, we're talking about extremism currently and they happen, there are these, these foundations in terrorism, but we also encounter them on a day-to-day -day basis, right? You mentioned addiction, you mentioned, right? Uh, right? And so, um, what what is it that people can do, right? So you've actually worked with people who have been involved with terrorist movements, right? And sort of seen processes of de-radicalization. And so it's possible to ratchet down our our needs for certainty, right? And sort of create a more a calm or pro-social space for us to live in? It is in principle. It is in principle from a psychological perspective we know what needs to be done. Extremism mm. uh, is promoted by a motivational imbalance. You know, mm. there, there has been uh, a long-standing argument about terrorism, whether it's a pathology or whether it's a normal type of behavior. And initially in the 70s and, in, and the 80s, uh, psychiatrists were pr uh, proposing that it must be some kind of psychology, maybe narcissism, maybe paranoia, uh, but the, the evidence accumulated that uh, this is not the case, that uh, uh, terrorism uh, is a part and parcel of uh, normal behavior, has to be understood uh, as, uh, as a normal type of behavior. And the pendulum swung the other way, uh, that anybody can become a terrorist, you and I could become a terrorist, Mother Teresa, I mean, taking it ad absurdum, Mother Teresa could become a terrorist, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King could become terrorists. That doesn't make sense either. So the question is, 
not whether anybody could become a terrorist and whether it's totally normal, but what are the circumstances under which somebody could become uh, an extremist. And uh, we, we have come to the conclusion that it has to do with the motivational imbalance. People have a sev several different basic needs, relatedness, autonomy, competence, uh, self-esteem, uh, psychological theorists identify these needs. And of course, biological needs for nutrition, for hydration, for rest. These are basic needs. But when, and, and mostly people want to satisfy all those basic, basic needs. And these needs constrain one another so that if a behavior came up that was satisfying one need, but was um, inimical to other needs, that behavior would tend to be avoided. But when one needs become dominant and the other needs recede, we have only a limited amount of uh, psychic energy. If all our energy is put into one thing, all the other needs tend to recede, tend to be suppressed, then the constraints that they exert on behavior, moral considerations, uh, normative considerations, uh, relatedness considerations, they all are pushed aside and, and you uh, concentrate on this one basic need and then anything goes because the constraint, so you can leave your family, you can neglect your career, uh, you can uh, neglect your empathy to other human beings uh, and that allows you to carry out extreme acts in service on altar of that one thing. So it's not that... Uh, and this is an abnormal state in the sense that uh, most people want to satisfy all their needs. So that's why uh, terrorists are a minority. The uh, extremists in all kinds of extremism are a very small percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, video uh, uh, addictions, 2% of the population. Even shopaholism, it's very easy with a credit card to be a shopaholic. It's only about 5% of the population. Uh, terrorists, uh, even smaller percent of the population, and it's not very enduring because those other needs uh, assert their their uh, their importance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, to to combat extremism of any kind, there are two basic ways. One is to identify a different means because because a, a different a means that uh, is not frustrating those other concerns. So for example, if you want to be significant, uh, you could be a terrorist, but you also could be a respectable professional, right? Uh, and so if you identify that, uh, for example, in our work on the radicalization in Sri Lanka, uh, and in many other cases, the programs provide alternative means to significance. Mm -hmm. uh, professional training, vocational training, uh, creating situations where a person can be a contributing member of society um, as an alternative to violence. Uh, and and uh, the, other, uh, the other way of uh, reducing extremism is to evoke those other needs, to evoke uh, cons a relatedness, to evoke concern with family, to evoke uh, uh, empathy and, and so forth. Uh, and, you know, many terrorists who, who leave uh, their profession after years tell you that it was very difficult, the sacrifice of other needs, 
not having a family, not having children, not having a profession mm -hmm. uh, is very, very uh, difficult and trying. Uh, so it kind of uh, wears out, the, the commitment wears out. And people, uh, uh, membership in gangs, membership in neo-Nazi organization lasts on the average uh, about 10 years, no more. Uh, you know, it's a province of the wild youth. Terrorists and extremists are usually young. When other concerns assert their importance, they tend to leave. Mm. Um, you mentioned, that's all so fascinating and important. You mentioned how stress can impact us and uncertainty in a sense is a stress. And so it's the case, is, is it the case that when there's more uncertainty or when you're more stressed under almost any variety of circumstances, right? I think the, in the literature, there's time constraints and when you have multiple things on your mind, right? And so it's really important to pay attention to how stressed out or uh, burdened you might be because it can actually, it can increase your tendency to these kinds of behaviors, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. You just mentioned things uh, that uh, impinge on one's psyche and uh, uh, limit one's uh, ability to uh, channel resources uh, to thinking and deliberation. And under those conditions, when you stress for time, when there is noise, when there is uncertainty, uh, when there are other needs that race through your mind, uh, you don't have energy to weigh things in a cool, deliberate way. And at that point, uh, certainty becomes very attractive. Mm -hmm. And of course, then uh, the extremist, uh, simplistic, populist uh, uh, narratives become very appealing because they provide certainty. Do you think, what is your opinion on how the internet and our access to internet media of all sorts impacts this question of extremism and our need for certainty? Well, it, it, uh, it bombards us with barrage of information mm -hmm. uh, that is very diverse and uh, it, it uh, augments the uncertainty Anything is possible. Uh, it uh, occupies your time. Um, so it leaves uh, less time for other pursuits. Uh, it, so it is, it is a source of stress uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, you can find similarly minded others. Uh, so you can create uh, enclaves, groups uh, that uh, support your extremism. Uh, so, you know, it has multiple, uh, multiple impacts that are not yet very well understood, uh, but uh, I think that it, de it definitely uh, changes the equation. Uh, it introduces a lot of noise. It introduces the possibility to polarize, to participate in, in, in a fraction of society as opposed to society at large. Uh, uh, it... Uh, it allows fragmentation. Mm -hmm. uh, but so this whole question, it, I think it poses a real challenge to policymakers and communicators because 
unfortunately, these messages that are simplistic and populist can be really appealing to us, you know, especially in times of uncertainty. And if what we need is nuance, right, if what we need is to uh, be able to understand the complexity of ideas, it's very hard to package them in a way that will actually reach people, you know, that will like get likes on Facebook or something um, or be voted on, right? And, and have a candidate be endorsed. Um, and so is, is there a solution to this question of, can we hold complexity in that space? Well, I think governments first uh, have to have the will to uh, control uh, these uh, uh, media and uh, reduce whatever threat they, they, they create uh, to uh, tolerance uh, of uh, complexity and open-mindedness. Uh, and the governments are beginning to try to exercise control uh, over the media, while at the same time uh, using the media to their purposes. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. uh, the trolls, the, the you know the uh, uh, the boats uh, and the rest of it uh, can be very effectively used for uh, po policy. Uh, as with any other tools, it can be uh, used in many different ways, and uh, we still have to find, as societies, a way of dealing with it. The, dealing with the invasion of privacy, uh, the uh, susceptibility to false information, uh, susceptibility to attempts to manipulate us, uh, uh, cyber threats, cyber terrorism. Uh, these are still very novel things that need to be uh, addressed and uh, uh, we still do not know what exactly uh, is, uh, uh, is the right way to, to deal with it. Mm. We live in a very uh, interesting world where uh, the multiplicity of information that we are uh, bombarded with and the uncertainty about the truth of the information, the idea of fake news, alternative realities, uh, creates a situation where trust in uh, established institution is waning. And we have to find uh, the little fraction of uh, uh, our tribe, our friends, that uh, support us because, uh, because the general societal institutions no longer enjoy trust. We do not trust the government. We do not trust the Congress. We do not trust, we, we see that the Supreme Court uh, is politicized. We do not trust the church, the Catholic church with all its excesses. We do not trust science, uh, the replication crisis, the idea that scientists make up data. So uh, that, that creates, uh, a kind of situation of postmodernism run amok. Uh, postmodernism, of course, denied the idea of truth. And now, uh, whereas uh, at one time it was the province of philosophers who debated these issues over coffees uh, uh, in, 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 in nice cafes, now it seems to be a spread out reality that uh, uh, all people partake of, and it creates fragmentation. You, you, you have to find uh, the people who, who you trust. And usually it's the very close ones, your family, your tribe. Uh, society is kind of uh, falling apart because of distrust. Uh, why, 
I, I know that this is a massively, massively complex uh, question, but is, is there a general, I know you mentioned postmodernism. Is postmodernism in a sense to blame for this uh, loss of trust? Is, is it the way the media has developed or corruption in government? Like, you know, is there something fundamental underlying how so much of our trust has dissipated? Well, I don't know to what extent postmodernism as a philosophical uh, discipline or philosophical debate has had impact on society at large. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, there has been a debate between, for example, science and, science and creationism uh, and uh, this uh, uh, idea of uh, using false news uh, through the internet, the boats, uh, the idea that uh, anything can be denied, uh, that uh, uh, the... the, the, the I think in part it was that we were too comfortable. Mm. Uh, at some point, we wanted cohesion, we wanted trust. Uh, following Second World War, in the height of modernism, uh, there was a, a great desire to trust society, to trust our institutions, to, to be optimistic. Mm. And we got very comfortable and uh, started uh, disrespecting uh, uh, the, the, the gift of trust and uh, deviating from it in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Technology, of course, allowed uh, a whole new possibility of spreading uh, falsities. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that anything can be denied and there is no absolute way of proving anything, that everything rests on trust. Mm -hmm. Science rests on trust. Uh, that's a postmodernist idea, uh, but now it seems to have spread uh, so widely uh, that uh, it threatens society. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we just had it, had this stability, this post-war uh, uh, post security and stability, and uh, we got too comfortable. And uh, we started deviating, we started uh, exploring alternatives, and the result is uh, the current... Uh, state of disintegration and i hope it doesn't take another cataclysm yeah uh that uh, would bring us uh, all back together and increase our desire for cohesion and the uh, and the uh, shared reality yeah that's actually something i've worried about for <laughs> for a very a very long time we don't humans don't seem to carry those kinds of memories forward as, as much as would be productive. You know, I, I've always had the sense that countries like Germany and Japan, right, they have a more entrenched memory of, of, of what happened uh, in the Great Wars and, and Americans, you know, have sort of been in this bubble of complacency yes. for decades. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Bubble of complacency. That's yeah. Adequate term. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and so in a, in a sense, you know, you were talking about institutions that require trust, and I feel like democracy in itself really requires trust, right? Because you have to you have to make up your own mind, and in a in a sense, in a world that's uncertain, that's that can be really stressful, especially with all the media and stuff that we're exposed to. Yes, so you have to trust somebody. You have to trust your candidate. You have to trust uh, uh, your government. You have to trust the system. Mm. Uh, trust is in very short supply these days. 
Uh, yeah. Talk about uh, bowling alone in, in his famous work. Uh, but since uh, the time that his book was published, uh, trust has declined even, even further. Uh, the Congress, the politicians, uh, uh, the presidency, I mean, you name it. And, and uh, there's just lack of trust. And, you know, in the, right. in the good old 50s, everything seemed to, I mean, things were not good. Uh, but I think uh, there was a sense that the world is an orderly place and you can trust your government. If they declare war, it's a good war. If they declare uh, economic stringency, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> you're willing to, you know, uh, think of what you can do for your country. Uh, but now uh, it seems that uh, everybody, uh, every communicator can be questioned and, and held in suspicion. Yeah, we have this hyper-individualistic, right? We have this hyper-individualistic culture. And I have often wondered, you know, about that subjectivism. Yes. And now also, you know, it's, it's sort of ironic because we have this need for significance. Yes. And, and we take it and we turn it into something that's nowadays, right? We get to take selfies and post them on social media and sort of build our significance. But it's so isolated um, and, and so, uh, so separated from, you know, other ways of, of doing things in, in more collectivist cultures uh, or ones where they have more trust. I just, I find it uh, worrying, you know, and, and also fascinating that we're sort of trying to create our own significance, which is at the same time creating for us a different kind of need or, you know, a different kind of need for significance that isn't being met. Right, yeah, we create our own significance through selfies, uh, we communi communicate with our uh, small group of friends, uh, and the, the, those larger things that unite society are kind of uh, uh, left alone. Uh, yes, and it's, it's very true in an individualistic society, uh, but I think uh, in an individualistic, materialistic society like ours, the inequalities uh, promote a great loss of significance in whole segments of population uh, that feel left behind. And you know, this is a well-known argument that uh, uh, this feeds populism. And I think it's, it's, it's very apparent uh, all over the Western world. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in other parts of the world, it's uh, the appeal of uh, extremist uh, versions of ideology, uh, of, of religion. You talked about religion, right? Religion can be twisted Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, support all kinds of uh, uh, violent behavior. Do you have any ideas about what can be done about it? <sighs> well, <laughs> as a psychologist, I think I, I understand what needs to be done about it. Mm. But uh, the world is not going to be saved by psychologists. You need to have political willpower. You need to have uh, the ability to uh, implement policies that uh, would uh, uh, create uh, alternatives. Uh, you, can, you, you have to uh, understand that uh, migrants and refugees, uh, if they are maltreated, uh, they will be drawn to uh, radical ideas. And uh, there is plenty of narratives that would be uh, appealing to them. Mm -hmm. If you mistreat them, if you offend the religion, 
there will be consequences. Yes, freedom of speech is wonderful, but you've got to understand that uh, it's a game of truth or consequences. Uh, sometimes uh, it's uh, uh, important not to say what's, what happens to be on your mind and be considerate of others. Uh, policies have to be implemented to understand the psychology of people, uh, that terrorism is not going to be resolved by military force alone. Uh, so there, there has to be a political willpower to implement psychological ideas. We as psychologists understand how to, what to do. And there are some uh, enclaves, for example, I'm working now uh, in collaboration uh, with uh, the Aarhus group in, in Denmark, Mm -hmm. uh, who use psychology to prevent violent extremism, to prevent radicalization, to de-radicalize returning foreign fighters. And that uh, rests on collaboration of the whole community, uh, the police, uh, the social services, uh, the religious uh, institutions all work together. Mm -hmm. uh, a model like that, if it could be implemented in other places, if trust to, to police could be increased, uh, then we could create alternative networks, alternative narratives that would address people's need for significance. So we understand what needs to be done, how to translate it, how to instill the political will of governments and officials to implement these ideas. Uh, you know, that's, that's a, a, a huge challenge. Mm is local and politics is short-lived. You're elected for a number of years. These uh, long-term uh, solutions that psychologists understand need to be implemented uh, may not be very appealing to somebody who wants to promise that within 10 years, everything is going to be solved. Yeah. Yeah, I have often thought that we need to foreground an understanding of how humans function yes. in our policy, right? Because that's the way we will be able to create successful policy, but it's really remarkable how little that is actually ever, ever done. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah. we understand that, you know, some things uh, are uh, intrinsically appealing and they can be misused. Uh, the appeal of certainty, the appeal of simplistic arguments, uh, the appeal of violence. Violence uh, as a means of significance is a primordial a primordial phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That's how animals settle their disputes. That's how little children from age one to three uh, solve their conflict. That's how sophisticated nations uh, attain their, their place in the international pecking order mm -hmm. by having nuclear power, uh, denying it to others. So, you know, violence uh, has an intrinsic appeal and uh, to understand it and to divert people away from it requires a lot of uh, sophistication, psychological sophistication, and the, the willpower to do it. Uh, the kind of moral resolve, understanding that violence, even though it may serve your interest uh, in the short term, is going to be destructive in the long term. And, uh, you know, long term, is not something that uh, many politicians appreciate because their careers are short-term by definition. Right, and, and we once 
I think it was really easy at one time to believe in this narrative of, of progress, right? That everything would be getting better and we're becoming more reasonable and more ethical and, and all of these sorts of things. But it's, it's very important to remember that that is, it's amazing that we have managed to build a society the way that we have, but it, it could vanish really easily if circumstances, when circumstances changes, we see, you know, we see that happen all the time. I think, I think it can. I think, you know, there are, there are some esteemed colleagues like uh, Pinker mm-hmm. uh, point out to the fact that uh, uh, violence and aggressiveness decreased significantly over right. the centuries and even uh, over the last century. But I think that uh, to believe that uh, this is necessarily uh, going to continue uh, is probably a mistake, mm-hmm. especially with the great advancement in destructive technologies, nuclear power that can be abused the possible proliferation, uh, it falling to the hands of fanatics. These are all possibilities that can, you know, bring the world to uh, the brink of destruction one more time. And, you know, the, the possibility of a third world war or some kind of cataclysm is ever present uh, because, you know, the human nature has not changed. Uh, and culture uh, can also devolve uh, from, uh, you know, from more positive, uh, tolerant, uh, uh, progressive ideas uh, back to the middle, uh, to the dark ages. Uh, That's our potential as human beings. Uh, And that creates a lot of danger that needs to be understood. Yeah. um, Thank you. I'm not sure if I have any I'm not sure if I have any more questions. I have, I have one more um, personal, somewhat personal question, if you don't mind, and then I'll let you run. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, I actually, this is taking a departure from where we've been. I happen to be one of the people who uh, is a little pathologically afraid of certainty. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's because of my, my commitment to truth and, and to open-mindedness. And so I'm wondering... Uh, if how you might personally decide or if you have any uh, ideas, right? Like how do we decide once we've learned enough? You know, how, how, do, we, how do we make up our minds uh, comfortably and, and move forward? It's going to be determined by your motivation. Uh, in some cases, you probably uh, are quite uh, ready to uh, make a decision. Mm. Uh, I assume that you have no problem crossing the street. Correct. <laughs> Usually. Uh, usually. Uh, you, you might have a bit uh, more of a problem choosing a, a meal in a, at a restaurant. That is correct. <laughs> uh, you might even have a greater uh, uncertainty concerning things that really, really matter. Yes, uh, the greatest, of course. The greatest. Uh, so, you know, it depends on the situation, depends how important things uh, are to you. Mm. Uh, it probably also depends on your uh, personal state of mind. Uh, I, uh, I find myself being less tolerant of uh, alternative opinions when I'm very tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't want to, I, I'm not inclined to uh, mobilize my energies to dealing with differences, dealing with alternative ideas. So, you know, it all depends on your motivations. There is no, I don't think that you can 
all you can do, uh, Stephanie, is uh, be aware of your own psychology on a meta-psychological level yes. and understand that uh, w- what you're doing now, uh, not reaching a decision, is because uh, you are uh, motivated uh, for the truth and, and, and for perfection, uh, perhaps. And uh, maybe that will help you understand that uh, you could more comfortably reach a decision and, and choose uh, a salad. <laughs> yeah, and, and, this is, and this is something that I think you've argued before is, is important for all of us to do is understand that we can be persuaded in this way and sort of know where we fall on this, yeah. on this spectrum. Know thyself, yes. I think that could help you understand that it's not some objective reality, but rather it's your psychological makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, determines the way you feel and you think. Yeah. You know, f- need for significance. Somebody said uh, you've got to control your pride because otherwise your pride will control you. Mm. Uh, understanding your makeup, understanding your quest for significance, understanding that the way you feel so offended when you f- or so terrible when you fail is because you have this quest for significance and maybe it can be mitigated a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Know thyself. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I know you have to run, so I'll let you go. Uh, This has been really, really good for me. Uh, So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun talking to you.